Be seated, please. Scripture reading this morning will be from John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. John 17, verses 1 through 5. After Jesus had said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with glory I had with you before the world began. Good morning to everybody. Happy Father's Day to all those who are fathers. We're thankful for you and we're thankful for your influence in the lives of your family. We're really grateful to, to God for godly dads. We honor our fathers today. This is also a day when we need to think about gospel preachers because as the church here at Katy, we have an investment in the lives of a number of men who preach the gospel or are going to be preaching the gospel. First on my mind this morning is Brother Zach Holmes. You know Zach and his wife Emily and their kids. They were members here before Zach left to go to Memphis to enroll in the Memphis School of Preaching. Well, Zach is graduating from the Memphis School of Preaching. And we want to remember him and his family as they go to the next chapter of their lives. We've invested in them because we believe in the kind of man Zach is. We believe in the kind of work that he's going to do in the Lord's kingdom. Not only that, we have Eric Winkler with us this morning. Eric has been with us through the summer and uh, is just finished his first year at the Bear Valley School of Preaching up in Denver. And we're grateful for Eric and his work. And we believe by investing in him that there are great things that are gonna happen in his life and in the, in the, in the situation with the Lord's Church because of the work that he's going to be doing. By the way, Eric is going to be bringing our lesson to us on Wednesday night this coming week. Uh, he's already recorded it, and uh, you'll see it uh, as you tune into our live stream. Did a great job. Also, third, we have with us this morning, Anthony Scherfus. Anthony, stand up if you would. Anthony is our summer preaching intern. You can be seated, Anthony. Thank you very much. Anthony just arrived yesterday, and uh, he was supposed to have begun as our intern back in May, but we were kind of busy with a lot of things back in May, and so his 12-week internship has been uh, shortened to a six-week internship, unfortunately. Anthony's a young man who's going to be enrolling in the Southwest School of Biblical Studies in Austin this fall, um, well, this, this August. And uh, so he's, uh, he's working with us. He's going to be studying with Daniel and Jordan and myself um, on a daily basis working in the office. And if you remember last summer, we had Braden Hudson for our first um, summer internship. And uh, Braden did a super job. We've come to kind of look at this internship as an opportunity to work with a young man, to help him to understand what the role of a gospel preacher is all about. 
and we kind of believe this. We believe that there's, there are different kinds of internships. There's, there's an internship where you ask the question, what can the man do for the church? We're asking more of the question, what can the church do for the man? We, we know Anthony's going to be a blessing to us. He's going to be teaching and preaching and, and writing for us uh, in some bulletin articles and things this summer, but we want to be a blessing to him. So get to know Anthony. He doesn't know 95% of you, okay? And so if you see him, hey, why don't, why don't you invite him out to eat or invite him because young men always want a place to eat uh, and somebody to go and something to eat. Uh, invite him to sit with you and get to know him. I know he'll be a blessing to you. We're glad you're here, Anthony. Let's pray about these three young men as we, as we begin our service this morning. Would you bow with me? Our God and our Father in heaven, we praise you and we thank you for your holy word. We thank you, Father, for people who are willing to preach your word. And Father, we pray especially this morning that you be with Zach and Emily Holmes as they graduate from Memphis, and we pray that you'll bless them in their future work for you. We're thankful, God, for Eric and for what he's accomplishing at Bear Valley, for the things that he's learning. Father, we pray for his heart. We pray for his, his desire and his passion and his zeal. We're so thankful for those things, and we ask that you bless him and use him mightily in your, in your work and your service. And we're thankful, Father, for the coming of Anthony. We pray, Father, that you'll endear him to us and us to him. And we pray, Father, that our work together this summer will be fruitful. We're so thankful for the opportunity to work with him. Father, we pray that you'll raise up more and more gospel preachers around this world. We pray that more people will be faithful and want to serve, your, serve you and, and to deliver your word to those who need to hear it. Thank you so much for Jesus, the first and the best and the most majestic of all preachers. And we pray that you'll help us to pattern our lives after him. It's in his name we pray, amen. Open your Bibles if you haven't already to John chapter 17. I want you to notice the passage. John 17 verses one through 26 is one long prayer. And it's a prayer that Jesus prayed. This is one of the great passages, the great chapters in all of the Bible. And there is so much worth contemplating not just because it's what Jesus says and not just because it's God's word, but there's so much worth contemplating because of the moment, the occasion when this prayer took place. In 1969, man visited the moon for the first time and Neil Armstrong was the first man on the moon. And as he climbed down the ladder, he said, that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. And we remember those words because of the occasion when they were spoken. If Neil Armstrong had opened his front door on a random day and walked out of his house and said, that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind, nobody would have remembered what he said. But the occasion made his words memorable. And so it is in John 17. When Jesus prays this prayer in John 17, the occasion makes what he says deep and rich and meaningful and memorable for all of us who would follow him. And the reason for that is because the occasion was he was within 12 hours of the cross. From John chapter 13 all the way to John chapter 17, Jesus is at the last supper with his apostles. From John 13 all the way to John 17. And Jesus speaks to his apostles from John 13 when he washes their feet all the way through John 16. He's telling them about what's going to happen. He's telling them about what he's done to prepare them. And he's speaking to them about what they need to know to face the coming hours and the coming days and weeks. 
I'm glad Jesus took the time to do that, aren't you? It didn't take the disciples, it shouldn't have taken the disciples by surprise what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane and in the following hours as they scourged him and put him on a cross. Jesus took the time to prepare them. But after Jesus had spoken to his disciples in John 13, 14, 15, and 16, in John 17, look at how it begins in verse 1. It says, Jesus spoke these words. He's been talking to the apostles. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said. So now he's speaking to his heavenly father. And interestingly, as you look at the prayer in John 17, Jesus uses the term father at least eight times, depending on your translation. Jesus knew that he was going to need strength and he was going to need conviction and he was going to need God's help. And Jesus turned to his heavenly father at a time when he needed to focus on what really mattered, what was really important. The occasion makes this prayer especially deep and meaningful for us. Notice in John 17, verse 1, the first words Jesus speaks, Father, the hour has come. Now, you might read that, and if you're not familiar with the gospel of John, you might ask the question, well, what does that mean, the hour has come? Just flip back in your Bible with me for a moment. In John, when you read John, the hour coming has to do with the death of Christ, the hour when he's going to die. But go back in your Bible to John chapter 2 and verse 4, when Mary speaks to him at the wedding in Cana at the very beginning. In John 2 verse 4, they have no wine, she says in John 2 verse 3. And Jesus says to her in John 2 verse 4, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And that phrase, my hour has not yet come, it gets repeated throughout the gospel. His hour, the time when he was going to die, the time when he was going to be glorified, it's not here yet. Turn over to John chapter 7 and look at verse 20, excuse me, verse 30. John chapter 7 and verse 30. Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. What John is saying in this, this idea about the hour coming, the time of Jesus' death, is that this is in God's hands, not people. People didn't get to volunteer and decide when they were gonna put Jesus to death. It was gonna be something that was God's sovereign plan, his sovereign will. His hour had not yet come, and so no one could lay a hand on him. Look over at John chapter eight and verse 20. In John chapter 8 and verse 20, these words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. Again, you can't just take Jesus and stone him or put him on a cross without God's approval. His hour has not yet come. Turn over to John chapter 12 and look at what Jesus says. In John chapter 12 and verse 23. Now we've come to the time when the Passover is about to happen and Jesus is going to Jerusalem. And he says in John 12, verse 23, the hour has come that the son of man should be glorified. And then if you look on down in verse 27 of John 12, John 12, 27, now my soul is troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Jesus knew that he was born to die for you and me. And so now when you begin this prayer in John chapter 17, verses 1 through 26, 
Jesus begins in John 17 verse 1 by saying, Father, the hour has come. And as you read this prayer in John 17, you'll find that like three concentric circles, Jesus prays first of all about himself, about his mission, John 17 verses 1 through 5. Then secondly, you'll see that Jesus prays for his apostles, verses 6 through 15, excuse me, verses 6 through 19. And then third, Jesus prays for all of us, for all future disciples in John chapter 17, verses 20 through 26. And those are the three points of our lesson this morning. As you look at the prayer of Jesus, what did he pray for? What can we learn? Notice this first. As you look at John 17, verses 1 through 5, Jesus prayed for himself. He prayed some things that you and I can never pray because of who he is. He is divine. He is God in the flesh. And he had a mission that involved saving the entire world, dying for the sins of all mankind. And so as he prays, there is one petition that he makes for himself. One thing that he's asking for, the thing that he's asking God for is glorify your son. He asks that in verse one, and then again in verse five in a little bit different context, a different way. But that's what he's asking. Father, glorify your son. And you stop and you ask the question, well, what does that mean? We've already connected the hour with the cross, the hour in which Jesus was going to die, the hour in which his destiny was going to be accomplished and all that he came to do was gonna be fulfilled. And so he's thinking, brothers and sisters, about the cross. He's thinking about what he's about to go through. And he says, Father, glorify your son. The petition has to do with God taking this horrible, torturous, awful fate that Jesus is about to experience and turning it into something glorious. That's what he's asking for. Father, glorify your son. Take this cross and this experience that I'm about to endure and use it for glory, for good things. And as you read on in John 17 verses one through five, you'll notice this is a picture of how Jesus conceived of the cross. The cross was not a surprise. Some people have tried to argue that it was to God, that God was taken by surprise. He didn't expect for people to reject Jesus and to hang him on a cross. But no, when Jesus prays, he says, this has always been the plan. And God, may you glorify your son through this experience. In the cross, God's glory is manifested, verse one. Glorify your son that your son may also glorify you. Jesus is thinking about how he's going to have to face suffering and death. And he says, in this suffering and death that I'm about to face, I'm asking God that I can glorify you. When you stop and think about what the cross means, the cross shows the great worth of God. Is God worth dying for? The cross says yes. It shows the value of God and of righteousness and of doing the right thing. Can God take a, what seems like a defeat and turn it into victory and turn it into glory? And the answer is yes, glorify God. The price of obedience is spelled out in the cross. And even Jesus, when he challenged you and me to follow him said, take up your cross and follow me, Luke 9, 23. 
In the cross, God's glory is manifested. It shows the greatness and the holiness and the love of God for us. But not only that, as you look at verse two and three, through the cross, eternal life is made available. Jesus says, this has always been the plan that you would give me authority, O God, and that I would be able to give eternal life to everyone who comes to me. And then he explains in verse three what eternal life is. This is eternal life. It's not just that you live forever and ever and ever. Eternal life has to do with knowing and having a relationship with God the Father and his son, Jesus Christ. You see that in verse three? Where do you find that? Where do you find that kind of blessing? You find it in the cross and coming through Jesus Christ because he is the one that God has ordained and he's the only one that God has ordained by whom we can have access to a relationship with Almighty God. It's through the cross that eternal life is made available. Look at verse four, Jesus says, I have finished, I have accomplished, some translations say, the work that you have given me to do. I believe in John 17 verse four, Jesus is speaking, not just about what he's already done, but about the hour, about what he's about to do in the next 12 hours. He's about to finish the work Mankind was lost without hope, without a savior, without any way back to God. And Jesus was about to build that bridge. He was about to finish that work. I have finished the work you have given me to do. And indeed in John chapter 19, verse 30, when Jesus gave up his spirit, the last thing that John records him saying is, it is finished. I have finished the work that you've given me to do. Side note, he was 33 years old when he said that. 33 years old and he said, I finished everything that God gave me to do. Was there more work to be done? Not from a redemptive standpoint, not from a standpoint of what really matters about bringing men back to God. Was there more work for the apostles to do? Oh, absolutely. Is there more work for you and me to do? Yes, but Jesus could say at 33 years of age, I've done everything I came to this world to do. Sometimes we ought to stop and look at our list and our schedule and our plans for the future. And we ought to ask ourselves, am I really finishing the things that are worthwhile? Am I really taking care of things that matter to God? Jesus did. Through the cross, Christ's redemptive work was finished. And after the cross, look at verse five, the petition is glorify your son. After the cross, Jesus asks this in John 17, five, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. He's talking about the round trip that he made. Jesus left the glory of heaven and he put on flesh and came to this world and suffered and died. And now in verse five, he's saying, God, I want to go back and be seated at your right hand and to share in the glory that I had before the world was. And the Bible teaches God did exactly that. When he raised up Jesus Christ, Jesus sat down at the right hand of glory and there he reigns even now with the glory that he had even before the world was. First Peter chapter one, verse 21, among many other passages speak of that idea. And so Jesus prays for himself and when he looks at the cross, it's something that he doesn't want to have to do because he prays in the garden of Gethsemane a little bit later, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done, Matthew 26, 39. 
But here in John 17, he's praying about the cross and he's looking at it and saying, this has always been the plan. And this is the way in which I'm going to save these people from their sins. I'm so glad Jesus prayed this because it helps us to know what's on his mind at a time when he was facing his greatest trial. Secondly, not only did Jesus pray for himself, but he prayed for his apostles, specifically for the apostles. He is with the 11. If you remember back in John chapter 13, Jesus washed all their feet, all 12, and then immediately Judas got up and went out to find the chief priests so that he could bring them to arrest Jesus. Jesus said, what you do, do quickly. And so it's Jesus and the 11. And from John 13 all the way down to John 17, it's Jesus and the 11. And now look at what he says in verse six. I have manifested your name, God, to the men whom you have given me out of the world. Who's he speaking about? He's speaking about these 11 that are around him and the things that they are doing and about to do. And so in verses 6 through 11, he mentions why these men, why these apostles were especially meaningful, special to him. And if you notice, it has to do with their conviction and their willingness to follow Jesus. If you read this section carefully, verses 6 through 19, you'll notice that there are repeated references to the world. The world, the world, the world, the world. You'll see that phrase over and over and over in this section. And what Jesus is saying is, these apostles are meaningful to me because they are different from the world. They have come out from the world. And when the world tried to discourage them and to deceive them, they've held on and they've listened to my words and they believe that the words that I've given them come from you, God. And, and they, they want to show your character and your nature and they want to participate in this mission that you've given me. And so they're meaningful, they're special to me. Jesus is praying for them from that perspective in verses six through 11. And Jesus realizes that as he goes to the cross, he knows full well that they're all gonna forsake him. He's already told Peter that. Before the rooster crows, you're gonna deny me three times, but Jesus prays for them regardless. And Jesus asks three specific things about the apostles. What would Jesus ask if he's leaving this world, if he is going to die and be raised and ascend into glory and to be glorified, what is he gonna pray for these men that are gonna be left behind? Look at verse 11. Jesus prays that they might be true to God's character. In verse six, he says, I have manifested your name to them. And then in verse 11, he says, keep them in your name. And you and I read that and we think, okay, keep them in your name, manifested your name. Maybe we need to study a little bit more deeply. The idea of God's name has to do with his character. It's who he is. It's what he's really like. Jesus came to reveal God's name to the world, God's character to the world, to show us what God is really like. How would God live if he were in my shoes? What would his priorities be? What kind, of, what kind of treatment would he give to other people around him? Jesus shows us that. And he said, I've manifested that to the apostles and God keep them in your name. May they continue to show and to manifest your character, O God. Not only that, Jesus prays that they would be guarded from Satan's schemes. Look at verse 15. Jesus says, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world 
but that you should keep them from the evil one. The devil is gonna work hard on these apostles because he knows how important they are and he knows that their mission is to be the foundation and the pillars of the church. He knows that their teaching and their lives are going to be critical to people knowing what it means to be saved. Keep them from the evil one. Don't let Satan overwhelm them or defeat them in the things that are really important. Jesus prayed that for his apostles. And then third, he prays this, sanctify them, verse 17. Keep them faithful to your truth. Look at John 17, verse 17. Sanctify them by truth, your word is truth. Over and over in this prayer, Jesus is saying, God, you've given me a message and I've given this message, these words to the apostles, and now keep them by those words, by that truth, keep them sanctified. The word sanctify means set apart. It means devoted for a purpose. If we need as a congregation, if we need, for example, to plant a big oak tree out there in the parking lot somewhere, we might sanctify, we might set apart three or four men, and we might say, we want you to locate an oak tree, and we want you to dig the hole, and we want you to make sure that oak tree gets planted. We're setting you apart for that work. We're going to devote you to that service. We want that oak tree planted. Jesus says, I've given these 11 men a mission. I want them to change the world with the gospel. Sanctify them by truth, your word is truth. Set them apart by the truth, by the words which they know. You know, the New Testament church needs to hear these things because truth is essential to discipleship. It's essential to people knowing and understanding what it means to know God. Sanctify them by truth, Jesus prays. We need to be invested in the word of God maybe like never before, because with all of the voices and all of the people talking to us and all the messages we're getting from all over the place, truth can very easily be lost in all that. Set them apart for your purposes, O God, by the truth. He prayed for his apostles. And then third, when you look at verses 20 through 26, Jesus turns his attention to all future disciples. What's on your mind, Jesus, as you face the cross? Father, glorify your son. Father, protect these apostles and sanctify them and use them to show your character to the world. And now, I don't pray for these only, look at verse 20, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Whose word? The apostles that he just got through talking about in verses six through 19. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, after 3,000 were baptized on the day of Pentecost, the Bible says they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, Acts 2, 42. Why did they continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine? Because it was the apostles who were giving the world information, revelation that came from Jesus Christ himself. And Jesus is now praying for us. He's saying, I pray for all those who will believe in me through their word. The things that Matthew and Peter and others had said, John, the apostles taught. Those things are God's will for our lives. And we believe in Jesus through 
those words. And so what's Jesus praying for these believers? What's he praying for you and me? As you look at verse, at verse 20, they're going to believe in me through their word to the effect that, verse 21, they all may be one. And there is a divine element to this unity. As you, Father, are in me and I in you, Jesus and his Father are in perfect agreement. They don't fight. They don't fuss. They don't say, maybe you need another perspective on this. Jesus and his Father are one. And he says, I want believers to be one, even as you and I are one. Unity. It's one of the great challenges to people today to seek after unity. Why don't people find unity in the gospel? When you look at the divided world in which we live, the divided religious world in which we live, why is unity so hard to come by? I'll tell you why, because power gets in the way. I might lose some of my influence if I really taught people what the Bible says and nothing else. Preference gets in the way. I really don't want to do what the Bible says and therefore I'm not going to teach and I'm certainly not going to teach others to obey it. Partiality. Sometimes we just prefer one thing over another. And Jesus says, I'm praying that all my disciples might be one. And I'll tell you something, in churches of Christ, what we are asking for, what we are pleading for is this. We are pleading with the world around us, with the religious world around us. Let's put aside all of our presuppositions. Let's put aside all of our desires and let's just read the Bible and do what it says. Because we believe when we do that, we're finding the answer to the prayer of Jesus, that they all may be one. How? By believing in and obeying the words of the apostles. Let's do what they say. And we'll find unity in doing that. It's what we're trying to accomplish as God's people. What else did Jesus pray for? Their influence. Sometimes this gets overlooked when we talk about unity why, Jesus, do you want unity among your believers? He goes on in verse 21 to say, that the world may believe that you sent me. And then in verse 23, again, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. When the church, when God's people, when disciples practice unity in a biblical, relational way, it is an evangelistic influence so that the world may believe, that the world may see this was God's plan from the beginning. This is what he always wanted to accomplish. And so he prays for the influence that we can have in the community around us. And the influence is found in unity and in pursuing unity. And that's hard to do, by the way. Just because Jesus prayed for it doesn't mean that it's easy to accomplish. Unity demands that I've got to humble myself and you've got to humble yourself and we've got to agree that we're going to let God's word be our guide, not rituals and not traditions and not what some man somewhere teaches. We're just going to let God's word be our guide. That's hard. That's tough. It's a lifetime struggle. But when it happens, the world sees something of the nature of God. Third, what did Jesus pray for? He prayed for our destiny. 
so that they may be with me where I am and that they may experience the love which you gave to me before the world was. He's praying about our destiny. You don't have to be lost. You don't have to face an eternity apart from God. You don't have to wonder whether or not you're in a right relationship with God. Jesus was thinking about you and he was thinking about me. And he was praying that we might be with him where he is. When you think about this high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17, there is so much more that we could glean from this passage. But what I want to leave you with is this. In this passage, we find the mission of the church. In this passage, we find the priorities of the church. What do you mean by that, John? I mean this. Five things. What should the church be all about? What is our mission? What are our priorities? Number one, the church is all about the glory of God. Isn't that what Jesus is praying about here? That God might be glorified in us as God was glorified in him when he went to the cross. Second, the priority of the church ought to be the truth. Sanctify them by truth. Your word is truth. We dare not speak and preach and deceive with lies, with misleading statements. The truth is what the church is all about. Number three, the church's priority is love. The kind of love that upholds the truth and that supports the truth and that shows people that love is not just about how I feel right this minute, it is also about where I'm going to spend eternity. And if I don't pay attention to that long view of things, I'm gonna really get a skewed idea of what love is. If I use love to excuse sin or to say that sin doesn't matter, then what I'm doing is perverting what Jesus prayed for. The church's priority is truth and love. Manifesting the character of God, number, number four. Manifesting the character of God. We preach about moral issues. We preach about the need to be righteous. We preach about the way we live our lives. Why? Not just because it makes you a good person. We preach those things because it manifests the character of God to the world around us. It's not just about being nice to people and getting along with people and being kind to people. Those things are all good. But why do you do those things? You do those things as the church because it manifests who God is. We're showing something of Christ when we show his character and that ought to be one of our priorities. Number five, the pursuit of unity. What's the church all about? We are about the pursuit of unity, not unity at the expense of truth, not unity at the expense of the glory of God, but unity that manifests the kind of unity that God and his son share with one another. When the church gets those five priorities right, we will be a lot closer to manifesting the kind of attitudes and emphases that Jesus prayed for. It is so easy for us to lose our way. It's so easy for us to think about what's going on around us in any time in history and to get caught up in the currents of what's happening.
We are the people of God. Jesus has prayed for us. Let's devote our hearts and our lives to fulfilling what he prayed for, because it matters. Maybe you're not a New Testament Christian. Jesus came to bring you eternal life. And it's only in him that you'll ever find that. This prayer confirms that. Only in Jesus will you ever find a knowledge of God. You don't know him if you don't know Christ. Come to Jesus. Put him on in baptism. He called earlier in the book of John, baptism, the new birth. John chapter 3, verse 5. Participate in the new birth today. Repent of your sins. Confess his name. Be baptized for the remission of your sins. That's how you become a child of God. If we can help you this morning, won't you make your way forward as together we stand and as we sing.